0: Okay. <clears throat> so before I start, who knows what an Ebenezer is? Right. No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We're singing a hymn. We ought to know what the words mean. Did you know? Uh, I think so. It's like a it's like a almost like testimony but like a bad mix. No. You're close. You're but you're half right. You're half right. Okay, it's from the book of 1 Samuel. one of the history books. Samuel's leading Israel. They've got the ark. They've gathered together the Philistines are encroaching on their territory. They cry out to God for deliverance. They come before Samuel and he says, Okay, if you're really serious about serving the Lord, then put away the idols that you've got in your household. Put away the bales and the asheroths. And they go, Okay, okay, we repent. And he said and they said, But defend but call on God, cry out to God to defend us from the Philistines, please. So he gets a lamb to sacrifice on their behalf. While he's sacrificing the lamb, the Philistines attack. Here's what happened. Samuel was offering, this is 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10. Samuel was offering the burnt offering as the Philistines approached to fight against Israel. The Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines that day and threw them into such confusion that they were defeated by Israel. Then the men of Israel charged out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, striking them down all the way to a place below beth And afterwards, Samuel took a stone and set it up upright between Mizpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer, explaining the Lord has helped us to this point. Okay. I dislike translations at some points, and at this point the translators are being overly fastidious because the Hebrew word Ebenezer just means stone of help. They really should have said that he named it stone of help, the stone of help. And he basically looked at Israel and said, I'm putting this stone up here because this is where God helped us. So that's the Ebenezer. Now, does anybody know what the word means? <laughs> I'm pretty sure I know what that word means. I'm sure Google does. Google will offer to help me here in just a minute. Okay, let me pray. I'm going to continue from last week, hopefully not as long, and um, talk about how we get the Bible, in the New Testament. Shouldn't take as long because the New Testament we got much more decisively solid, strong evidence for. Let me pray first. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for a day set aside for us to rest and for us to turn to you in praise and worship and refreshment and to hear you speak to us, to hear your word proclaimed for us. Father, help me to carefully explain the scriptures, how we got them, why we can trust them, how you have used them to reveal yourself, and how you have preserved them through the centuries to us so that they are a reliable, trustworthy revelation of yourself for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, New Testament. Next slide. I'm not going to read this quote again. It makes me angry, raises my blood pressure, and I forgot to take my meds this morning. Um, So I'm probably already a little up. But this slide is a lie. It purports to undermine your confidence in the Bible by challenging it as to its fidelity and asserting that it has been changed and edited and altered many, many times over the years, um, altered to... Win the favor of kings and altered to suit the whims of the papacy, none of which is true. Next slide. So back to where we were last Sunday. How do we get the Bible? Which is really two questions. Why do we have the 66 books that we have? It's question one. Question two: are we sure that the text of the 66 books that we have is what the authors originally wrote? Those are the two questions. And those are the two ways in which the scriptures have been attacked very forcefully for the last two centuries. And, and I have to say at this point, in the 21st century, the scripture has withstood all of those attacks. And the academic and skeptical attacks on the scriptures have actually prompted people to go out and do research and to do more archaeology, all of which has reaffirmed, asserted, and strengthened our confidence in the scriptures. Amen. So, next slide. 39 books in the Old Testament, if you count them the way we Christians do. 22 if you count them the way the Jews did, but exactly the same books. 27 books in the New Testament. Next slide. So now we're on to the topic of the day. When was the New Testament canon fixed? Who decided why these twenty seven books and not others? Good questions. We really do need to think about them and um to have an answer. So next slide. I give you four testimonies to a very early fixing of those twenty seven books. Four early Christians whose names you ought to know. Four of what are called the early church fathers. Um, Thankfully, blessedly, because of this, after you get tired of cat videos, you can go to an online electronic version of the early church fathers translated from Latin and Greek into English. You can read what these guys wrote. First one is Justin Martyr. Very early dates. He's born in A.D. 100, dies in 165. He's born in Judea, and he dies in Rome. Next slide. We'll come back to the other three in just a second, I promise. So here's a quote from Justin Martyr's First Apology. He's writing this probably about 150 A.D. On the day called Sunday, uh, by the way, First Apology means he's he's trying to explain to the rest of the Roman world who the Christians are, what they believe and what they do, and to defend them against some charges that have been leveled in the Roman world that these people are crazy and they do terrible things. And so he's written a long apology saying, no, let me explain to you who the Christians are, what we do, what we believe. He says, on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, And the memoirs of the apostles, or the writings of the prophets, are read, as long as time permits. It's about 150 AD, you've got an account of what the early church was doing when they met together on Sunday, and a reference to this category of writings called the memoirs of the apostles, which, by the way, is... One of the tests of canonicity, the 27 books of the New Testament, were all written by apostles, all written by eyewitnesses of Jesus. Paul asserts he is an apostle and an eyewitness of Jesus because Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road, spoke to him. So the memoirs of the apostles he almost certainly means the Gospels. By the way, he he knows there are four Gospels. Has a, a, a long, elaborate, very strong, assertive defense of why there are four Gospels. And so we know the early church is already doing this. It's about 100 years after Jesus' crucifixion, 120 years perhaps. And um, we don't know how long they've been doing this, but almost certainly they haven't just started doing this in Justin Martyr's lifetime. This has been, this is the custom and the practice of the church. And it makes sense because this was the custom and practice of the synagogue, was to gather and have the scriptures read and explained and to sing and pray together. The Christians, all of the early Christians, by the way, little footnote here in case you didn't realize, all of the early Christians were Jewish. That sometimes escapes our notice, but that's just a fact in fact, at one point, every Christian in the world was gathered in the temple courtyard in Solomon's Fortico. The entire physical church was together in the temple courtyard in Solomon's Fortico. That's where Peter preached a sermon to the crowd looking at him going, who are these people? And why do they appear to be drunk? That's another story. Okay. Next slide. Justin Martyr's explanation to the Roman world continues, For the apostles in the memoirs composed by them, which are called gospels, have thus delivered unto us what was enjoined upon them, that Jesus took bread, and it goes on and gives the words of institution. They're the same as the words recorded in the Gospel of John, but are the same as the words of institution recorded by Paul in 1 Corinthians. All right, next slide. told you I'd come back to the other. That's Justin Martyr, 150 A.D. Origen, A.D. 185 to 253. Brilliant, a genius, child prodigy very learned in the scriptures, very eloquent writer in Latin, born in Alexandria, died in Tyre, but traveled all over the ancient world, went to Athens, went to Greece. Um, He and the bishop of Alexandria, unfortunately, never got along. But the bishop of Caesarea finally ordained him a priest, and he, the bishop of Alexandria declared all of that was invalid and ordered him to come back, and he said, no, thank you, I'm, I'm fine. Um, But he wrote a thousand essays, of which we have maybe a dozen. We wish we had lots more. So Origen defends the four Gospels, uses all sorts of interesting rhetorical devices. Just as there are four directions on a map, there are four Gospels. it's, It's the appropriate number. Eusebius, bishop of Caesarea, he's one generation after Origen. He's the first one who gives us a list of the 27 books, and it's the same 27 we have. He does that right around 300 AD. Um, by the way, it's uh, it's a misnomer, and um, I have a few words of difference with Dan Brown. You might be a good fiction writer, but you got to remember it's fiction. Um, If you saw the Da Vinci Code, um, it's fiction. It's not history. There's a scene at the beginning there where they have a a riot at the um, Council of Nicaea, and they're arguing about which books should be canonized. The books of the New Testament were not canonized at the Council of Nicaea. That's a uh, an urban legend. That's a popular myth. Eusebius already gives us a list 20, 30 years before That council is the same list we now have. Athanasius is the first one to pronounce in a pastoral letter. He sent out a letter to all of the churches in Egypt every Easter, and he lists the 27 books. It's actually another church council at the end of the fourth century that first makes a pronouncement about which books are authoritative and recognized as inspired, But they're not choosing, and they're really not making any decisions. They are simply recording and reporting what the church has already recognized. They are acknowledging the fact that all of the churches universally have recognized that these books have authority. So authority was not bestowed upon those 27 books by a church council or by Origen or Eusebius, They're simply recognizing that the church has actually recognized the inspiration of the spirit in these books because they testify to Christ, because they're of apostolic origin, and because universally all of the churches recognize that these are the works that we need to read on Sunday and listen to. Next slide. It's another interesting Testimony here that sort of moves from why these books and not others. The other books, we do have a few spurious Gospels. They're dated later. They're not by apostles. They have things in them that will make you raise your eyebrows. But in terms of our assurance that these books were apostolic and that we have a good, firm text from them, here are three names earlier than the four I just mentioned. The four I just mentioned are on that list because they assert the 27 books. These three bishops, Clement, who's bishop in the first century, he's bishop of Rome from 88 to 99. He's not direct successor of Peter because Peter dies in Nero's persecution in um, 64 AD. So there are, I think, maybe two bishops between Peter and Clement. But we have writings from Clement. We know he was Bishop of Rome. Ignatius is the Bishop of Antioch. Died about 140. He was taught. He was a disciple of John. The youngest, the beloved disciple, the author of the Gospel. He taught Ignatius. Polycarp, likewise, is a contemporary of Ignatius. And the reason I have these three together here is The three of them together quote from 21 of the 27 books of the New Testament in their letters. So we know they already knew those writings. You cannot assert that the Gospels were written a 100 years after Jesus was crucified because they're already being quoted by Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp. The letters of Paul. People go, well, Paul may not have written them. They were written a couple of decades later. Somebody put Paul's name on them because he had a reputation and they wanted to borrow his authority for what they wanted to say. No, no, these guys are quoting the letters of Paul at the end of the first century. Next slide. Sorry, here it is. 25 of the 27 New Testament books received as canonical by the councils, that's an important phrase, by the way, not made canonical by the councils, but received, recognized as canonical by the councils, are quoted, referenced, and alluded to as authoritative by these three bishops. From the end of the first century and the beginning of the second. Next slide. So now we're shifting into Did the text in the New Testament change over time? Was it edited, re-edited, tampered with, allowed to be changed by people in authority, altered to suit the whims of the Pope? Modern scholars have backed away from the skeptical assertions of especially the Germans. The German theologians of the 19th century are not to be trusted. Um, they all said, oh, you know, it's a long period where these stories are just told orally. The early church was um, the, the lower class. It was the peasants and the uh, laborers in the countryside. They weren't really literate. They, they had an oral culture. These stories were orally transmitted for a long time before they were written down, maybe a century. Who knows how they got changed? Well, now... Even the most skeptical of scholars admit every book of the New Testament is written by 120 A.D. That's the, the latest date that anybody holds on to. They used to say 150, 160, That scholarship is all gone. That is what I was taught when I was in college many moons ago before we discovered fire. Um, yeah, no, it, it's hard for me to believe, but I was in college. My 50th wedding... 50th wedding anniversary and the 50th reunion of my college class will come up in just a few years Um, so 50 years ago this was not taught so over the last 50 years scholarship has had to back away because the research and the archaeology and the discovery of new manuscripts has said they're wrong they're wrong Lots of scholars, perhaps even a majority, and certainly most of the evangelical scholars will say every book of the New Testament is written by 90 AD. The last being Revelation by John in exile. I'm actually persuaded, this is not the majority position, but there are a number of scholars, it's not unique to me at all. But I think there's some very compelling reasons to believe that every book of the New Testament is written by 70 A.D. There really are some reasons to support that. I'll actually go further. I think every book of the New Testament is written by a Jewish Christian, including Luke. I think Luke is a Jewish physician. He's the only possible author of any of the four Gospels who might have been a Gentile. I don't think he was. There was a Jewish college of medicine in Greece. And Luke joins Paul on his missionary journey, and there's there's some good reason to believe that Luke was Jewish. Maybe, maybe. Lily and I used to argue about this. Um, Lily doesn't believe he was Jewish. I think he was. But I think they were all written by 70 AD. I'll come back at the end and, and give you my reasons for that. Okay, so what's our oldest copy of the New Testament text? We talked about this last week. Our oldest copy of the Old Testament text, the Hebrew, was the Leningrad scroll, this is not it, um, but that's a picture of it. Actually, it's not a scroll, it's a codex. So, I'm cheating a little bit. Until the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that's where we made the jump back of 1,200 years and said, ah, 1,200 years, we only knew the Hebrew text from 1,000 A.D. Now all of a sudden we've got the Hebrew text from 200 B.C., And it's the same. So our oldest copy of the New Testament text, there's three manuscripts. By the way, manuscript just means written by hand. Everything before 1453 is a manuscript, a handwritten copy of a book. So our oldest handwritten copy of the New Testament, complete, is the Vatican manuscript. Now, it's interesting for a couple of reasons. Let me flip to the... um, Oh, well, you're ahead of me a little bit. One more. There we go. All three date to approximately 325 to 450. So for the Old Testament, we had to go to 1,000 A.D. to get a complete codex. A complete codex means book. It means that instead of stitching the sheets of papyrus together on a long scroll, you take either sheets of papyrus or vellum skins and you stitch them along one edging right on both sides. The Codex is a book, invented by Christians, by the way, because the early Christians wanted to have all 27 of their books put together, not in scrolls, but in one single volume. And so they're the innovators. We owe this way of recording the written word to the early Christian church. So all three of these really are quite old. 325 to 450 AD, and uh, I got pictures. Um, yeah, blow that up for the folks watching on YouTube if you can. People were complaining last week that I have my font size on my slides is too small. It's because I have so many words I want to get out. Um, so the Vatican manuscript—it's the oldest. It is, of course, in the Vatican Library, which was founded in 1448. And the first index of the books in the Vatican Library was done in 1481, and it's on the list. We don't know how long it had been in the Vatican archive, probably a long time. It looks to come out of a family of manuscripts that are called the Alexandrine um, because of the style of the writing and the papyrus, um, Erasmus was provided with a few readings from the manuscript. He actually corresponded with a couple of the librarians in Rome. He asked them to look up a couple of passages for him, and they did, and gave him the Greek text that he had requested. He didn't get a chance to look at it, and he didn't use it. Um, the access to this was tightly controlled. Access to it got a little bit wilder when Napoleon came through Italy in around 1800 and stole it. And took it to Paris. It was in Paris for 15 years, and when Napoleon finally was defeated and at Waterloo and banished, um, they returned it to the Vatican. It's there. It was still pretty tightly controlled until um, the late 19th century. And in 1889, 1890, there was a photographic facsimile published because photography. They photographed every page. So we know from 1890 what this codex looks like. This is a picture of the codex opened. Um, It's two columns per page. It's the Greek text. And 325 is just astonishingly old. By the way, in doing the research for this over the past week. I ran across a company that does facsimile reproductions. So if somebody really, really, really loves me. They're 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 custom done to get cow, um, yeah, cowhide leather and vellum pages and um, hardwood in pieces, and they will do a phot- photographic facsimile of this for you for the um, gentle sum of four hundred and ninety nine dollars, and it takes six weeks because they do them to order. Um, the Vatican actually published a version oh, late 1990s, I think, but they only printed about 300 of them. There are a couple of bookstores in Europe; um, one in Regensburg uh, that has one for sale for about 3,000 euros. Um, that's the one actually printed by the Vatican. So we've been able to consult it now. Erasmus didn't have the full text; neither did the King James scholars who did the translation for the King James. Second oldest, and the one with the wildest history, the Sinaitic manuscript. This one looks a little different. It's not two columns per page. It's four columns per page. The Greek text. Um, called Sinaitic because it was discovered by a German scholar, Constantine von Tischendorf, In 1859, in St. Catherine's Monastery, in the Sinai, at the base of the Mountain of Moses, the monastery was built by the Eastern Emperor Justinian over the place where the burning bush had appeared to Moses. It's still there. It's like a little walled city at the base of this mountain. Still a Greek Orthodox monastery, they have about 3,000 manuscripts. And they were very stingy about letting people in to see it. Tischendorf made three trips over about 15 years trying to persuade them to let him into the archives to see the manuscripts. On the final trip, he'd actually gotten sponsorship from um, the Tsar of Russia, uh, which he thought would help him because the Russian Tsar was Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and um, and they recognize each other. Uh, and he thought the monks might be more persuaded if he had a letter of introduction from the Russian Tsar. And they brought him this manuscript um, written in about 350 A.D., and he was just flabbergasted. Um, he persuaded the monks to give it to the Tsar of Russia. So he took it to Alexandria first and spent two years studying it in Alexandria, painstakingly copied 110,000 lines of text very, very carefully and, and printed that. And then, again, because we've got photography appearing as the new technology of the 19th century, they did a facsimile printing uh, right around 1900. The czar um, paid for 300 facsimile copies from photographs that were distributed around the world used to be in St. Petersburg up until 1933. And, of course, Lenin and Stalin had no use for it, and they were facing hard economic times. So they sold all of the czar's possessions off in the 1930s to raise money to buy food. Um, interestingly enough, if you ever go with me to Washington, D.C., Roddy's been with me. Our National Gallery of Art in Washington is the czar's art collection. It was bought by the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury out of his own money, and then he paid for the building in the Great Depression. Um, it represented about 40% of Russian exports that year. He bought the Tsar's art collection, brought it to Washington, D.C. The core of the National Gallery of Art is the Tsar's art, which Stalin and Lenin had no use for. Well, they had no use for the Sinatic Codex either. They sold it to the British Museum in 1933 for $500,000 and the British Museum still has it. It's not always on display, but it has been out a couple of times, and there is a photographic facsimile of it available as well. Greek text, four columns per page. We can compare with um, all later translations, but not really widely available until about 1900. The final one, <clears throat> the Alexandrine Manuscript, Um because all the paleographic, paleography is just the study of writing. All the study of the style of writing, the scribal hands, the forms of the letters, the age of the paper, shows it to have come from Egypt. And it, we knew it was in Alexandria for centuries. We didn't to trace it back. Brought to Constantinople around 1620 by the patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church, he became great friends with the British ambassador. Um, there was a British ambassador from the court of King James. Yes, that King James in Constantinople, he persuaded the patriarch to give this manuscript to King James. Now, it was 20 years after they'd done the King James Bible translation. So the King James translators didn't have access to it. Um, And it took a couple of years to actually finish all the arrangements and get it to England. So it actually was delivered to Charles I in 1627 after James had died. And when it arrived in London, it was carried in a huge procession from the boat that it had shipped on through the streets of London to the um, Royal Library, which became the British Library, which is now part of the British Museum. So the British have got this one as well. It's a little later. It's 450 A.D., and it's a little different from the others because it's a slightly different region of the world, and there are a few um, alternate readings in it. Those are the oldest complete manuscripts. Next slide. But it does raise the question, you will, if you poke around the Internet, it won't take you very long, you'll find somebody saying, there are 200,000 mistakes in the 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. They're right. There probably are 200,000 mistakes in the 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. But we'll call your attention to the first thing. There's 6,000 manuscripts. There's 6,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament that we know about, that we have. Now, not all of them as old as those three, um, fourth century, but here's how it happens. Next slide. You won't be able to see this at home. I apologize. Um at the top of this tree is the copy written by the apostle with the phrase, the only son of God. And different people make copies of that and send it out to different churches. And that same phrase in that same verse, the only son of God. Somewhere along the way, one scribe gets distracted by a fly and skips a word. And so in his copy, it's not the only son of God. It just becomes the son of God. But then everybody who makes a copy of that copy doesn't know that there's a word missing. And so you see, you can't really see it on this, it's red on my copy. Um, You get down there to the bottom, copies of copies of copies, we have between five and 6,000 manuscripts, you'll see four or five of them have the Son of God, and the rest of them have the only Son of God. They're going to count, by the way, each manuscript that doesn't have the word only in it as a mistake. And if you count not just the omitted word occasionally here and there, but an omitted letter or a misspelled word that everybody else who's copying misspells thereafter, then, yeah, it all adds up to 200,000. It doesn't affect the sense of the scriptures at all. Next slide. I mentioned the fact that we have that Alexandrian Codex from 450, and we have the Vatican and the Sinaitic from 325 and 350, they're a little different. Here's the biggest difference. The Alexandrian text omits seven passages from the entire New Testament, most of them just one verse or two verse. You can't read this. I can barely read this. So John seven fifty three, the story of the woman taken in adultery. It's in the Byzantine family of manuscripts. It's in the Codex Vaticanus. It's in the Codex Sinaiticus. It's not in the Codex Alexandria. And if you really get interested in this, Mike Winger um, peace be upon him, and blessed be his name for his sound teaching, just did a, what was it, a five-part podcast, five podcasts, on the story of the woman taken in adultery. His final conclusion is probably not in John's original manuscript, but ought to be in there now, because it appears to be an inspired true account of something that actually happened. And the most likely explanation is somebody had another document that told stories of things that Jesus did, and they're making a copy of John's gospel. And they get to that point, and they go, I've got this other story. looks like it probably happened about here. So they wrote in the margin, here's this other story. Because John admits in his gospel, not everything Jesus did can be recorded. To record all the miracles that Jesus did, would take all the books in the world. So somebody says, oh, I have this other source that tells this story about something that happened when a woman taken in adultery was brought to Jesus. Wrote that in the margin. Somewhere down the way, another scribe gets the scroll, stories in the margin, he goes, why is that part in the margin? Maybe the scribe making the copy lost his place, skipped that, Went on and then realized he'd skipped it, so he went back and put it in the margin. He says, I can fix that. I'll put it in line with the rest of the chapter. It's not that somebody thought, Oh, I can make up a cool story about Jesus and put it right in here. That's almost certainly not what happened. Scribes don't do that. When a scribe is making a copy, we talked about the Talmudic regulations. Those were carried over by the Christian monks as well. Would be the height of hubris. For somebody to put a line in, out of their own brain. Most of these passages, um, the other ones are um, two verses in John 5, um, two verses in Luke, um, one and a half verses in Matthew, um, a part of um, Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, the doxology to the Lord's Prayer. It's in the Byzantine text. It's none of the Alexandrine. Um, the longer ending of Mark, which is a bit like the woman taken in adultery. When something's in one set of manuscripts and not in the other manuscripts, the overwhelming, most likely probable reason for that is a scribe doing the copying missed something and left it out. Not that a scribe doing the copying thought, oh, I have a thought, I think I'll put it in right here. A scribe, a monk making a copy of the Gospels, is not going to put in a verse. So if you have two manuscripts, one of which has this verse, one of which doesn't have that verse, the most likely thing is, that verse was probably in there originally. Some scribe lost his place and inadvertently, not meaning to, left it out. There's no doctrine of the Christian faith that depends on any of these verses, by the way. absolutely doesn't change any of our theology at all. But there are those variations. Okay. How much has the text changed? Well, now we come to the Parallel New Testament story to the Old Testament Dead Sea Scrolls. In addition to those old complete manuscripts. Those are just, that's the complete text of the New Testament. They go back to the fourth century. We have little pieces of parts of the New Testament that are much, much older. Not complete, but much older. All the way back to 125 AD to 250 AD. We have parts of the New Testament. Next slide. Here's the oldest one. It's called the Rylands um, Papyrus. Uh, it's in England. Everything's in England. Um, it's a little fragment. It's got parts of six lines, six and a half lines, and it's a, it's a codex, so it's written on both sides. So I have a picture of the recto and the verso, and there are lines from the Gospel of John. And it's on papyrus. It came from Egypt. The scribal form of the letters shows that it's an Egyptian scribe. The papyrus indicates that it's Egyptian. The style of the writing indicates that it's about 125 A.D., possibly a little bit earlier. So think about This is why they can no longer say the Gospel of John was written in 180, by the way. They used to say that. It wasn't really the Apostle John. It was written... Somebody just put John's name on it to give it more authority. No, no. we got a piece of it that dates in 125, and it came from Egypt. John's writing in Asia Minor. So copies made in Asia Minor then make their way to Antioch and Jerusalem and eventually Alexandria. That doesn't happen in a week or a month. It probably takes five, ten years. So if you find 125 in Egypt, it's got to have been written 10, 15, 20, 30 years before that, at least that's just the latest it could have been written. 90 AD is almost certain as the outside latest date for the Gospel of John. Because we got a piece of paper, and the the fragments of the lines perfectly match up with the later unsealed texts. If you lay this thing up against the four complete codexes, you can go, oh, that's this line, and that's this line, and that's it, and it's from the Gospel of John. 100% certainty it's from the Gospel of John. Okay, the significance is, well, yeah, next slide, I just gave it to you. The Gospels of John's already circulating in Egypt at an early date. The text of the Gospel of John is the same in these verses as it is 200 and 300 years later. Word for word, letter for letter, exactly the same. Nobody changed anything. So, back to this: When was it written? When were they written? And how do we how do we know? I think it's written before 70 A.D. and and let me tell you about why. Uh, next slide. Yeah. 70 AD is an important year in the first century. Really important event in 70 AD. It's like the 9-11 attack of the first century. Everybody remembers where they were when they heard about this event. Next line. It's the Jewish rebellion and the destruction of the temple. That wasn't just of interest to the population of Israel. That reverberated through the entire Roman world. Everybody knew about that. Josephus writes an account of that war in Latin for a Roman audience. It is the 9-11 event. You young people won't get this, but everybody remembers where they were on 9-11-2001. Everybody remembers what they were doing on that day. Everybody in the first century after 70 A.D. remembers what happened that year. And not a single book of the New Testament makes any mention of it or allusion to it. And it's almost unimaginable that you would be writing the accounts of the New Testament, the doctrines, the letters, especially the book of Hebrews. Oh my gosh, the argument of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is the superior high priest to the priests who offer sacrifice in the temple, and that Jesus is the superior sacrifice to the sacrifices that are offered in the temple. And if you were writing after 70 A.D., you would at that point almost certainly mention, and that's why God allowed the temple to be destroyed. Remember Clement? We have a letter from Clement. That's the argument he makes. He says exactly that. He references the book of Hebrews, because he's he's reading Paul. It's certainly written before he's bishop of Rome. And he says, and that's why God allowed the temple to be restored, to destroy it. But the author of the book of Hebrews doesn't mention it. Nothing in the New Testament. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What better capstone to Jesus' life and death and ministry and his offering of himself as the perfect sacrifice once and for all, what better historical argument to drive that home than to mention the destruction of the temple? They don't mention it. I think every book in the New Testament was written before 70 A.D. Okay, a couple of final points. Talked about ancient manuscripts and the number surviving. How many of you ever read Plato? Plato's Republic, the cave analogy, something about the death of Socrates, yeah. Are you convinced that Plato is a historical figure? Are you convinced that we actually read what Plato wrote? Because he's writing about 400 B.C.? You know how many manuscripts there are of Plato? How many handwritten copies of the writings of Plato we have in Greek? Next slide. Seven. Total. Seven. And the oldest one dates from about a thousand AD. Do you believe you're reading what Plato wrote? Julius Caesar. Omnia Gallia in tres partes divisa est. All of Gaul is divided into three parts. He writes an account of his own military. Exploits and expedition in in uh, in Gaul when he's a general, we read the works of Julius Caesar. We know a lot about Caesar. You know how many modern, uh, not modern. You know how many surviving handwritten manuscripts there are of Caesar's Gallic Wars. Next slide, ten. Grand total, ten manuscripts survive from the ancient world, and the oldest of them is 600 years after he wrote. Tacitus, great Roman historian, tells us all about the Caesars, next slide. We have twenty manuscripts of Tacitus. Aristotle, when he's rediscovered in the Middle Ages, there's a whole group of um, theologians who are just absolutely entranced, read his stuff and start applying his logic and analysis to theological terms. You know many manuscripts we have of Aristotle from the ancient world in Greek? Next slide. Forty nine. I've alluded to it. Some of you might have actually recalled the number. You know how many manuscripts we have of the New Testament in Greek? Next slide. 5,600. The reason somebody can say, oh, there's 200,000 errors. Well, yeah, there's 5,600 manuscripts. And they disagree on like 0.05% of the words and spelling. is absolutely not in doubt. And 5,600 manuscripts means we can check and cross-check and look from this century and this century, see if any changes were made. No, there were not. Let me leave you with this. Um, I was going to try and compose my own little... Peroration summary here. Instead I found one from Professor James Holden, who's a colleague of Norm Geisler and the president of um, Veritas um, Seminary in California. He and Geisler founded it together. Based on the various kinds of evidence, it is clear that great care was taken to accurately copy the Greek manuscripts. We can be confident. That the text of the New Testament as it stands today is substantially the same text that was originally written by the writers of scripture. Next slide. Here's, here it is. The quantity of New Testament manuscripts, the dates from the original manuscripts to the earliest copies available, the quality of the copies in the New Testament manuscripts all serve as undeniable and powerful witnesses to the accurate preservation of God's inspired and inerrant word. We can be confident. What we have is what the apostles wrote. And I could go through, I showed you the F.F. Um, F. Bruce, the New Testament documents. He does a wonderful job. It's a whole separate question, how historically accurate. The names of the Roman officials, the names of the cities and towns and their locations and the distances from each other, the other events, the modes of travel, the details of cultural life, all of those details from the New Testament have been confirmed over and over and over again by the discoveries of archaeology. And the same is true for the Old Testament. I was sharing with the Men's Bible Study yesterday, and I talked to Doug about it. the 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 Biblical Archaeological Society publishes a, a magazine that summarizes the discoveries in the Middle East. For the last 50 or 60 years, every archaeological discovery in Jerusalem and in the rest of Israel has confirmed the historical accuracy of the Old and the New Testament. We can be confident, and we got the Bible because God providentially through history. These things didn't happen by accident. This is not a man-made phenomenon. The story of the preservation of the Old Testament scrolls and the New Testament writings of the apostles is a, a story of God's providential care and preservation of his word and the revelation of the gospel of his son. So that it could be proclaimed. And I haven't even talked about translations into different languages, which I could could go on at length about. I didn't even bring out my Luther facsimile, so I wouldn't get on a rabbit trail today. I hope that's helpful. I hope that um, deepens your faith, provides you with more assurance, maybe some incentive to spend more time studying these writings. The Old Testament and the New, the Old Testament is quoted 280 times in the New Testament. The New Testament writers thought the Old Testament was worth quoting. It's worth reading for us, therefore. So I encourage you, find time, find a group that you can study with. My own experience is I always learn more when I sit down with a group of guys and we talk about what we're reading. Um, we're finishing up the book of Genesis right now, and it's been just marvelous. I, I jokingly refer to that little group on Saturday morning as my, own very, my very own little Sanhedrin. Um, it's, you know, it's the old joke about <clears throat> three rabbis, five opinions. Um, we actually exhibit that some Sunday mornings. Let me pray for us. I'll offer a blessing, and then we will be dismissed. Father, thank you for the gift of revelation, for your revelation of yourself in your Son, in his life, in his ministry. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, The apostles beheld his glory and recognized him as the Son of God, the perfect Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you that they gave us a written record of his ministry, that inspired by the Holy Spirit they were able to recall the most important things that he said and did. Thank you that the Apostle Paul wrote letters to the churches explaining and proclaiming the gospel. Thank you that all of that was preserved for us. Pray your blessing upon those who are here as a part of this fellowship this morning, those who are watching over the Internet, or who will watch recordings later on. Pray that you would bless your word to their edification, to the proclamation and the propagation of your kingdom. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.